Welcome to the Argument for Permaculture. I'm Matt Powers, author, teacher, seed saver, gardener, and family guy. And I have been studying permaculture for a long time, as almost as long as I've been gardening. And I've been teaching permaculture to thousands of students in my online courses, and then to tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands more online through social media and YouTube. And I have distilled this argument down from all that experience. And in many ways, this is a condensing of the first two weeks of a PDC. But it's to show you why people get so excited about permaculture. And it's also to give you the reasoning why permaculture is more important now than ever. And, you know, in this current world that we're in, it can feel like there was a before and after not too long ago. Before the lockdowns, you would have been kind of seen as crazy a little bit or a little bit paranoid to be a prepper. And people who homesteaded, people who grew their own food, kind of seen as hippies, and people who were preppers and survivalists we're kind of seen as extreme. And the concept of shortages, travel restrictions, and lockdowns sounded all kind of crazy. And after the lockdowns, there's a realization that food shortages, supply shortages, supply chain disruptions, power outages, rationing, droughts and flooding, and crazy weather are now a part of reality and you kind of can't avoid them any longer. It's not the state over there or that coast or it's happening everywhere. We need to be prepared, especially if you have families, especially if you have older folks, especially if people on medications that they can't miss a month. And if they miss even just a few days, it can be catastrophic. So there's something I learned in all my studies, something that Alan Savory talks about, how stress in the land is mirrored by stress in people. And so we're seeing that play out. We have all sorts of problems, but there's kind of some watersheds to look at. Desertification is the net result of soil degradation, deforestation, in many ways pollution, dead zones, um, water scarcity, of course, ocean acidification, mass extinction. And I know that there's a, a, an argument going around being saying that we're not in a, the sixth mass extinction, but we have lost 50% of biodiversity in the past hundred years. So that's, that's massive. Regardless if it's one of the six mass biggest ones, that's, that's different. We don't know that until it's over. Climate change. Desertification on a local level changes the weather. It causes more droughts and flooding. And it causes the, the water cycle to, to come all at once and be erosive and, and, and destroy the landscape more than it nourishes the landscape. With the loss of trees, the loss of soil, the loss of places for habitat, for life, you have a, a, a desert being formed and desert climates are very different from the temperate and tropical and rainforest climates. 
And so desertification, while it's not, you know, sexy and not being promoted, is a, a really an old concept that's been happening this whole time and everyone knows it. It's not controversial. And it's really the net result of all of these things. And human disconnection is reflects this stress because everything really is connected. It all relates to our world becoming less fertile and more barren. That's what desertification is. We are headed for a desert planet, kind of like Dune. Do you guys watch that? I watched it. It was so good. I was obsessed with that book, though. And, you know, I read it over a dozen times as a kid. And I even reread it as an adult with my son. My youngest son is reading it right now. And it is such a good book. One of the things that I was really fascinated by was terraforming. One of the things I, I felt when I heard Elon Musk's plan to go inhabit Mars was that... <laughs> Why terraform Mars when we need to terraform Earth? We're not far off the mark here at Earth. <laughs> and and we could heal it. It's not that badly damaged in the scheme of things. Like, we can bring things back. It's not Mars. You know, in the, in the universal scheme of things in the universe, right? right? These other planets are not habitable in, in, in any sense, really. And so Earth's got everything we need on it. So why not make it happen here? So ethical terraforming, making sure that we're not destroying habitat, we're promoting life. And by doing that, by partnering with nature, leveraging technology carefully and wisely, we can make this happen. This is what permaculture has been for me. But, you know, in fact, it's been way more than that. And it was, it was that at first, but as it's opened up and as I've studied it, it more, it's, it's how we're always going to be prepared, not just as, as individuals, but as communities and cultures. Co-founders and co-creators of the, the concept permaculture, David Holmgren and Bill Mollison, distilled all the world's longest lasting and most regenerative cultures into universal ethics and principles. So they were looking at Edo period Japan, where the population, the overpopulation was greater in cities than it is now. And they figured it out without all the technology we have today. So there are fertile time periods that are regenerative or aspects that are regenerative in cultures all over the world. But the main ones that they distilled it from for, for the methods in the early permaculture design manuals and books was Japan and China, specifically Farmers of 40 Centuries. This F.H. King book is incredible. This is this has inspired so many people. But primarily, it was the indigenous cultures around them, the Australian Aboriginals and Tasmanian Aboriginals that inspired them. And David was 17 years old writing his thesis. He was a young, graduating young from college at 17. Genius. And a university professor lived in the same building, in the same house as him. They're housemates. 
and that was Bill Mollison, and he was a professor working on a theory for everything. So they combined forces and wrote that first book. Bill went out to promote it, and and then Bill also helped map the entire genealogy of the Tasmanian Aboriginal people, and that gave them land rights. So really incredible people we're talking about. They came up with these distilled ethics and principles to guide regenerative action so that we can go out in the world and heal the natural world and live ethically and responsibly. So the three ethics and the permaculture principles together combined, they imply deeper things as you can see that I've added in, but they are earth care, people care, and future care. And we'll get into the third ethic later if that's like a knee-jerk reaction moment there for you. <laughs> but we're going to go through each of these one by one. This was originally a visualization for a book that I'm, I'm still in the process of writing. It's actually a updated version and an extension of this book, which is uh, an earlier edition of this book. is free on my website, thepermaculturestudent.com. So check that out. And it's over 400 pages. It's a PDF. You can just download it or you can listen to it on YouTube on my YouTube channel. Subscribe there. And I, I read it as an audiobook for you. So that's there for you to check out. That's my gift to you. It is a book that is part of a curriculum that is the first accredited for high school credit in North America, but only in British Columbia so far. We're going to branch out hopefully soon. Um, but that book is there for you. It's free. You can download it or you can listen on, on YouTube as a full audio book while you're working, while you're driving. And and I'm going to be going into that book eventually, Advanced Permaculture. I'm going to finish writing it. This is my outline. This is how I think about it. So I'm going to run you through all of these, these different aspects right now, right here. And then we're going to go through the principles. And then I'm going to explain why this helps us be prepared why it's something that will benefit everyone, why you want it in your life. So, and more of it if it's already in your life. So this is exciting. I'm really excited to talk about this with you because um, this is something that has been on my mind and I've been working on for years, earth care. The way I was visualizing it when I began permaculture was basing everything off the PDC and what Bill Mollison had already written. And so I was focused on kind of translating their work and updating it by going over their research and looking for new insights to bolster it or complicate it or expand it. And one of the things I came across was the fact that um, other than, you know, aquaculture and some pond culture kinds of things, the ocean just wasn't even talked about uh, in, in riparian areas wild water was not discussed. And so I kind of just kind of put it to the side and was like, oh, well, the ecologists can help with that. And then as I learned more about what ecologists do and don't do, I realized that, that that's not going to work at all for the future of our wild places. They're not going to help them. And so it's really up to us to, as, as a culture, to value these places and to value stewards of these places that will improve them. And one of the huge gaping spaces that I saw 
and blind spots and permaculture as I went through this and started trying to adapt it to science curriculum for university and high school students was there's nothing about the ocean. And so I took it upon myself to start doing the research and start learning from experts and have them show me what they know to be the pathway to healing the ocean. And in the process, I learned incredible things that we're about to go over. But let's start with land care, because uh, that's the most obvious. This is a picture from Regrarians from Darren Doherty, and it's one of my favorite pictures. It's featured in the Regenerative Career Guide, and this picture, you can really see how key line design is beautiful. Land is the foundation for all economies and cultures because it's our interaction relationship with land that allows us to have economies and culture. So in permaculture and earth care and land care specifically is care for natural systems and it's rehabilitating degraded or damaged ecosystems and creating our own beneficial living spaces. So in many ways, this is just practicing permaculture design on a homestead essentially and doing our part to help the larger ecosystem. And this is where permaculture design comes in. This is what people are getting their PDC to be able to do. And we're really good at this part in permaculture. You know, uh, this is Mark Shepard's new forest farm. This is featured in that book. Same thing with Jeff Lawton's farm. It's featured in that book, Zaytuna. This is the main focus for many people. And that's okay. But there's more to it. The only ethical decision is to take responsibility for our own existence and that of our children make it now. So making that beneficial living ecosystem that we can thrive within so we stop pulling from the natural capital around us, from the environment around us, is so key. But it needs to be broader than that. Ocean care. We need to think about the oceans. 70% of the world is water. 70% of your body is water. Though, the open ocean is like an open tundra. And it's the coasts where the life primarily is. And it's where all the nurseries, all the delicate fertile areas are around the coasts. The reefs are just off the coast or in shallow waters. The, the ability for life needs that calmer, more fertile area. And sadly, it's where we park our boats and where often things get dumped. California's massive offshore oil spill, this is happening right now. Not only that, since 2014, before this even happened, 90% of kelp is gone off the coast of Northern California. So the Southern coast is being poisoned by that. And not only that, off of Catalina Island, Close to Santa Barbara in LA, there's an incredible amount of DDT dumped in that water. 25,000 barrels of toxic DDT. And if you took the SATs, you know Rachel Carson's silent spring. This is the DDT they're talking about, okay? So this is the thing that launched the environmental movement. This is the thing that launched the Environmental Protection Acts. It was Rachel Carson's silent spring. This is what got people aware that these chemicals were dangerous. So this is there. Tons and tons and tons and tons of it killing everything and the surfers are going swimming in it every day. The oceans provide 50 to 90% of our oxygen depending on your location and time of year. 
If you are in the middle of Iowa, in the middle of winter, your oxygen is not coming from evergreens. They don't photosynthesize in winter. They just hang on. It's coming from the ocean. So in other words, in the middle of the country, the ocean is providing your air. This is why, and there is some exchange, but not much with the other hemisphere. It's incredible. There's a three-year exchange is what they've, what they've been able to figure out. So it's not much exchange. So there's an incredible dearth of photosynthetic generated oxygen in winter, and we owe the oceans for that oxygen. So it's incredibly important that we protect our oceans, we protect the photosynthesizers. Those kelp forests were creating oxygen, and now they are gone. And all these plants and animals on the coast, they're edge species, and they're an example of the power of the edge effect. That is where two edges, two ecosystems meet, there's a third group of just edge species. You have the land animals, you have the water animals, you have the edge species, you have all of it combines to be more than two plus two equals four. It's an exponential growth. These are areas, they're hotspots of biodiversity. These areas are crazy fertile and it's cradles like this that allowed life to really take hold. So it's on us to protect these areas all over in nature so that they're fertile again and they protect the biodiversity in them. Because biodiversity care is something that, again, it's often not talked about, but in permaculture, when you set up a full homestead, you sometimes have endangered species just show up. Why? Because you got the best place and they just want to let you know. And so some people worry about, you know, folks getting uh, getting their, their house shut down or their site taken over, and this can happen. So if you've got endangered species, perhaps be quiet about But you're doing a lot to take care of them by providing them a habitat. And that's really what, it's, what it comes down to is the lack of land and ocean care has led to a decline in biodiversity because that's their habitat. So the orangutans... I want to be able to, when I meet Willie Smiths in person, I've talked to Willie Smiths. Uh, I, I really respect Willie Smiths. If I'm on a panel with him, I'm sure he's going to go down the panel and be like, do you use palm oil? And he's going to let you know how wrong it is if you do. And I'm ready. <laughs> I'm ready to be like, no, Willie, you touched my heart and I, and I never did again. I never bought that because I know, I know how bad it is. I want orangutans to live wild and free. And not only that, koalas, all those catastrophic fires, how much habitat did they lose? I've seen incredible numbers, like 80%, 90% of their habitat. This is an incredibly staggeringly high number. Mountain gorillas. They're becoming rarer and rarer and rarer. What will it be like to live in a world without wild animals? This is one of the main questions that Charles Eisenstein asks in climate. I'm really honored that he's going to be a speaker at our future in January, the conference, the online free conference. Answering the question, 
what is your most hopeful and inspiring vision for the future? So I'm really excited to see what Charles has to say about that. But he asks us, how will it feel to be in a world knowing that there was wild animals here and that nature was this vibrant thing and now it's gone? It might be too much for the human heart and mind. And, you know, I don't buy this narrative going around that the biodiversity will just come right back. I, I, I know that they're talking about like former mass extinctions and, you know, evolution responds dramatically, but that's like millions of years. Like, let's be honest. That's not like in, in, in your time period of, of you and your grandchildren. No, no. And it won't come back as gorillas. Like when we lose a specific type, it doesn't come back. You might have other things create wings or create a pattern that looks like that. We've seen that evolutionarily in the archeological record, but biodiversity doesn't come back. So we need to be stewards and responsible here. And not only that, the it's not that bad argument, the climate alarmist, it's not a mass extinction. It's like you never know if it's a mass extinction until it's over 50% of the biodiversity of Earth. To say it's not that bad is just journalist baiting. And I, I really, that snarky journalist making the rounds with the... Uh, Joe Rogan and Jordan Peterson and other people, they're giving them airtime. I don't know why. But his his proposition that things aren't that bad is ludicrous. The, the, the thing is that the mainstream narrative is absolutely off base and their solutions are ludicrous. I agree. But to say that... Uh, when you know the majority of the earth is desertified that the oceans are in decline it's global oxygen levels are in decline dramatically and they've been in a nosedive for over 100 years ever since we started measuring you'd think that someone who's intelligent and responsible would would do better but that's the thing. We've got a lot of people that just want want to hold the mic for a minute and get see get 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 some kind of attention. You know, it, it's really wild. We're, we we're in a situation where so many people are really confused, and 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 the reality is, if we just look at the information, talk about it, and use logic and what we already can know and verify. It's all very clear, all very fixable, all very doable. And the burst and bloom, the catastrophizing, the fear shopping, the hoarding, all these things help certain people and they don't help us. So I really question a lot of these, you know, they both sound like convenient lies that they're using to sell things. Uh, or to sound different, to get get on the mic for a second. So why do I feel this way, though? You're like, Matt, explain yourself. So 
have you read the Sand County Almanac by Aldo Leopold? It was published one year after Aldo Leopold died. Many people consider him to be the godfather of ecology and the environmental movement in America. And he, in the 20s and 30s, was lamenting the loss of the wilderness and wild animals in America. The thing is, the animals are so sensitive that tens of miles away, like 50 miles away, 30 miles away, any kind of human activity would send the animals further. So we didn't have to do much to disrupt things profoundly all across the U.S., but we went further and we deforested and replanted most of the U.S. And we planted it into a monoculture, leaving in many places, leaving out trees that we didn't like. So by removing the plants and the trees that particular animals, pollinators, insects all relied upon, we kicked out legs underneath the table long, long ago. And he was lamenting this, feeling like it was the end then, before the conservation movement had even begun. Rather depressing book, but it's fascinating to see how animals used to behave, how complex and how interesting the relationships really were, and how vibrant living ecosystems truly could be if if we brought them back to America. And you know, in many ways, uh, we'll touch upon one example of that actually happening in America later in this talk. You know, and if things just come back, we'd have mastodons back by now. I mean, right? So it's really about habitat loss and desertification. We have to bring back the wild spaces and all the animals we can to those spaces because they are the active stewards of all ecosystems. All right, now let's talk about people care because this is something that's kind of implied, something that's not touched upon very often, but people care has specific aspects. They're internal, they're between people, and they're between uh, organizations and, and, and government bodies and institutions. So interpersonal. A lot of people get interpersonal and intrapersonal mixed up. Just think interpersonal, it's going to interrupt you. It's someone else involved, right? It's an interaction. But intra-introspective, right? Intrapersonal is looking within. It's the ability to understand ourselves. We need that now more than ever. The lockdowns, the psychological effects on children, all of it tested many people. Interpersonal care is more important now than ever. You know, I wrote an entire book on my personal journey and practice in regards to this. Unstoppable enthusiasm, and there's a free course as well that comes with it. That's on Amazon and Barnes and Noble and other places. It's because I'm not without my, 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 my challenges. I have Crohn's. My wife is a multiple time cancer survivor. And so we have had to overcome things in our own lives. The things I do daily, meditation, breath work, qigong, yoga, affirmations, gratitude journaling, prayer and study. And I use a high-performance journal and calendar. I study high-performance uh, behaviors and take courses on self-improvement, lots of Brendan Burchard courses. 
And I, I'm always trying to up my game. When I miss any of these things, my family lets me know. So they're really important to me. They're really powerful. But you may have your own practice. You, I, I, I like to lift a little. Um, I like to do pull-ups. You might work out. You might run. And that's that's meditative. That's like breath work too, right? Cardio. All of it. Uh, whatever, whatever helps you get centered in your life, take care of yourself. And, and it will help everything in your life. Interpersonal care. This is the, the care between people. This is what people think of when they hear people care. They think of taking care of grandparents, showing love to a neighbor, um, having community um, gatherings and, and socializing and showing appreciation, birthdays, you know what I mean? That's a, a way that we show care that's built in as a tradition to our culture. These kinds of things are incredibly important and, and we all know it. And so interpersonal care, it's something that we have to consciously realize that if we don't have this ingredient in the mix, it will always miss. When we talk to people, they remember the way we make them feel much more than what we've said. So it's incredibly important that we show care for other people whenever we communicate these ideas or implement any of these ideas. Because if, if, if we aren't, we've missed the entire point. Governance care. Now, let's get into this. Hot spot. It will look different to different cultures and people. I'm just going to say that just from the beginning, right? Right. Uh, sometimes we need governments for protection. This is why we have militaries. This is why, you know, the Nazis were defeated and all the people in concentration camps that were still alive were able to be rescued. It's incredibly important uh, to recognize that the values of unity and work and freedom and equality have, have led to great things happening and being included in governance and uh, human rights being included in governance and incredible things. So they're there for protection, not just from the outside, but from within, from other elements for your rights, your human rights, like the Bill of Rights in the United States. And they're also there for care when there are no other options. I mean, that's literally what grants are for, right? Uh, because there's no funding out there and no banks would help to fund. That's where they come in to fund that particular business or industry to promote it. And this has happened over time at different times and happens at varying degrees with different countries and different cultures. But care is also welfare. Care is also public education. It's care when there's no other options. So there's a disaster when, and, and, and this differs, right? The levels of care, and I would say kind of like the, the kinds of care change. Let's keep going. We'll get into more of that in a second. But economic care is an extension because the economies are managed by the government. So economic care is really an extension of government care. And right now there's kind of a contest of between two different economic approaches, the capitalism and communism right now between America and China, it's really playing out. And China just decided to do a classic communist planned market move. They didn't like something and they stepped in. 
and they caused a catastrophic trillion dollar market crash. What they did was saw that the education sector was making so much money and it was helping people with the ability to pay for a good education, to get a good education. They decided to make all of it nonprofit and so they stopped one of the most profitable components of their economy and destroyed it. Switching everyone to nonprofit didn't slow them down. It utterly destroyed them. And that's why it, the stocks are crashing over there because they stepped in, which is a classic communist move. And the reverse of that is not as much lately, but has more traditionally been a hands-off system with certain protections for people's rights and certain guarantees for care, like health care, like sick leave, like workman's comp. All those kinds of things were created as, as, a, as a relationship between those two tensions. But they do allow for businesses to thrive. And they wouldn't step in and say, okay, all private schools, you now need to become public schools. And because of this direct control, they destroyed this profitable component of their economy and it tanked the stock market. And this comes after them banning all skyscrapers and high raises. And it's because they've had to demolish entire cities. And what they did was they took credit from government banks wasn't based on anything. There, there were zombie banks and they basically flooded their market with fake credit and now um, it's come due. And so they're making really poor choices and it's because they brought in fake money and it's because they destroyed the education sector of their economy and it's that government attention that is negative care kind of like an over-controlling parent, you know, with that wayward teenager, you won't do what I say or be like me. And, and so they become like a dictator. They become authoritarian. They become fascist, communist, Nazis. And it's, it's that control over other people that we do not like, that, that, that is just too much. And permaculture is in contrast to that. The only ethical decision is to take responsibility for your own existence and that of your children. And so it's not about governance, you know, as much as it is about governance protecting our abilities to do this, to be able to take responsibility for ourselves. So independence was born out of self-reliance and natural abundance. Early Americans could not have pulled away and kept you know, Britain from coming back if it wasn't for their self-reliance and the natural abundance of the Americas. This is why we became self-reliant in the first place. And this is also why when we become self-reliant and promote natural abundance, we become more free and help others to become more free. Natural systems are autonomous and self-reliant. They are wild and free. Can you hear the song? But they follow certain guiding principles. I mean, the animals have instincts. Ecosystems have, have principles and cycles that they follow. And if we follow them too, amazing things can happen. So what should guide governments? Well, the three 
ethics should guide their decision. There's also the principles of choice, empowerment, and self-regulations, but we'll get there, we'll get there. Future care. Long-term investment, long-term planning, management, monitoring, and adaptation. Now, many of you might not have been taught future care is the third ethic, and you're saying, what about the other forms of the third ethic, Matt? Well, controlling population and setting limits to consumption was the first iteration of the third ethic. And in the 80s and 90s when this was circulating, that sounded an awful lot like the Chinese one-child policy, which is draconian in the way that they enforced it. And, I mean, draconian isn't even the word for, for how awful it was. So th th this is why that turned people off. Setting the limits on consumption, self-regulation, that's the appropriate way to do that. Return of surplus is what it became next. And that sounds too economic to people. They don't know really, like, is that taxes? Um, or am I just putting, like, a scoop of compost back into the, you know, like, what is that? And it sounds like it de-incentivizes growth. And the degrowth movement is overlooking the natural desire within us all for growth. It's human nature to want to grow, to become better, to expand, to explore. And we need to literally regrow all the ecosystems. So I, I think that we can work on this. I think we can grow. I think it's okay to grow. It's just how we grow. Fair share came about with this book in the early 2000s. I was in college when David Holmgren, now an adult, wrote this. So this is later on. This is much more recent. A lot of people didn't hear Fair Share until much later on. Fair Share, though, can sound socialist or communist to certain people. And it really begs the question, like, who decides what's fair? And it also, you know... This is why future care works so well, because moms don't give their fair share. Moms give so much more than their fair share. And in fact, none of us would be here without our ancestors sacrificing for us to be here. So we, we stand on, on the shoulders of our ancestors. We stand on that debt of gratitude that we owe them for us being here. So fair share doesn't quite fit with that. So where did future care come from? Well, someone in a conversation on Facebook, just a comment conversation, brought it to my attention and said, I think you're gonna wanna look at this. This is like a catch-all. Native Americans are thinking seven generations deep in certain Native American cultures. And it's that long perspective that allows for us to think about our people systems and our natural systems most appropriately. And it was really convincing. I was like, I'm going to do it from now on. I adopted it fully. I was all in. And then I was attacked. Not like, like a year or two later. I thought it was all cool. And then there was like this concerted effort to say that I was messing up permaculture by bringing this into it. And you've ruined the third ethic, Matt. And they like wanted, they wanted me canceled for this. And like, I don't out of nowhere comes Starhawk. And she's like, oh, you have a problem with future care. Well, I published it in my book years ago. And then it was like crickets. It's like, where did they all go? 
And then I started talking to her about it. I said, that's awesome. And she was like, yeah, it's actually not my idea. I heard it an African permaculture convergence. So a group of people got together and were discussing. And out of that discussion came this new iteration of the third ethic. And really, like that's what permaculture convergences really are for. It's for gathering and discussing and, and questioning and improving and and I feel that future care really is powerful. I feel like fair share, maybe that's more people care. Maybe fair share, making sure that everyone gets a fair opportunity and everyone's treated fairly in, in terms of equality. That that makes sense as a people care ethic. When we look at return of surplus, when we look at fair share, all their weak spots are fixed and they're all gathered up in future care. And so future care, I break down as long-term investment first. So long-term investment, you know, when they say, when is the best time to plant a tree? They say 20 years ago, maybe they were really onto something. They've recently discovered from actually doing experiments with this, that new forests in their first 20 years, are giving off carbon. And when when it swings the other way at 20 or so years, then it can start taking in carbon more than it releases. So it really is true that 20 years ago is ideally when we want a forest planted or a tree planted because it takes that long for it to be mature enough to have a, a, a serious value to the soil, to the atmosphere, to everything around it. So we want to get those trees in the ground. These are long-term investments. They don't mature in front. They mature on the back end. Their values in the long term. So we want to do this right. And it's not just trees or forests. It's kelp forests. It's ocean coastlines. We need to look far into the future and see where we're headed. Not in a necessarily like a computer projection said this. Da, 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 da. I'm just talking about like if we continue dumping chemicals into the waterways, if we continue having water warm without us reacting or doing anything to help cycle the water and help the cycles in that area, we're going to have long-term consequences. So we have to have long-term investments to counteract long-term consequences from our current actions. Um, we have to do the same thing to just fix the problems we've created in general. Natural capital is the foundation for all economies and cultures. So if we don't invest in the natural capital, we are losing, we are creating national emergencies we're planning the seeds for national emergencies. I mean, the entire mismanagement of the California wild life and forests has led to the desertification being as bad as it is and all the fires. I'll, I'll just explain really quick. They dammed all the water before it could trickle down and into the foothills, into the forests and they remove that water to the cities and farmers and running them through turbines and big pipes, selling the electricity back to the people that are soon to be burned out by fire. So it's real bad, it's real bad. 
And if we don't fix the natural capital of California, we're going to lose 80 to 90% of the food growing capacity in the U.S. So it is really on the horizon that this is going to happen unless they do something drastic soon. And they're determined to keep doing what they're doing and playing the music louder. You know, they're like, no, 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 no. We're going to play that music louder. And they're, they're dooming themselves. And this is why so many people have left because they realized, hey, no one's coming for me. No one's going to help me. No one's going to do anything about these fires. They're going to do nothing to prevent them. They're going to do nothing to stop the progression of desertification in California and not many other states. And, and when we realized that, we got out. We just we realized like no one's going to save us. No one's going to protect us. Um, there's homeless camps where they're, they're lighting fires and it was every few days that we woke up in the middle of the night cause there's another fire and several times it was on a road and we're on a deep Canyon road, high Canyon walls. These fires spread so fast. It's, it's nerve wracking even just talking about it and going back into that space of how unsafe I felt with my family there. But that's it on the macro too. Um, by not investing in the natural capital of the world that we live in, we are literally guaranteeing that something could go along to wipe out an entire city, like paradise. That literally happened in four hours. That city was gone. So that can happen. And, and that's why you're here. That's why you're watching this because you know these things can happen despite what the media tells you. Things aren't so bad. You know, this doesn't matter. And, you know, it's all just a myth. N not when it's bearing down on you. Not when the mismanagement of the forests um, is in your face. It's just, it's just patently clear. And when these things are taken care of, the natural abundance, you know, like the fish, the wildlife, the clean water, the clean air, you can't put a price on that. And we can bring these things back. This is a beery bud. It's a seed of a future reef. We could be doing vertical ocean farming. We could also be doing all of those in tandem and restoring the actual kelp forest. I know people who are doing this in California off the coast. So this is all possible. We could be cleaning the water as it comes in to prevent dead zones and eutrophication. We can restore our coasts. And by doing so, we will increase the natural abundance and we will enrich the foundation of the economy and culture. Let's talk long-term planning. Because when we see long-term planning go into effect, it is powerful. This took nine years to accomplish. That's short in terms of long-term planning, but it goes to show you what looking beyond the fiscal year, looking beyond six months, looking beyond the next product launch or the next election allows for us to see and do. This is a 10,000 year old problem. This is where agriculture began in China. It is their own Middle East. This is their own fertile crescent. They restored it in nine years. We can do this everywhere. And in fact, this was a joint US, World Bank and Chinese joint project. So they know this is happening. They know this is possible. And I would say this is the greatest accomplishment of, of China in modern history. Um, 
So, and I want to make sure to keep it separate from all their other things that they've done and said and everything. This project, they had to empower the people. They had to follow a permaculture principle by giving them choice and freedom and power and ownership of land in order to get this done. So this is, this is the product of applying those principles in, in people systems. It actually ballooned, started off as 35,000 kilometers and turned into half a million square kilometers. And so if, if you want scale, 35,000 uh, square kilometers is the size of Belgium. So this is an enormous amount of land that was restored and put into permanent vegetation and we, we can we can see that this plays out everywhere if we just bring back the trees and earthworks to slow the water down store the water in the landscape and promote soil regeneration we see the plants come back this is only three years in the middle of the saudi arabian desert this is neil speckman's work just amazing and this is empowering the people there so that they can get back the core of their nomadic culture, which is goats and other grazing animals and sheep. And so that they can do this without being nomadic anymore. They can stay in the areas that they were forcibly settled into. So this is, this, this is a way that they can get in touch back with the land finally. You can see it's in the middle of the desert. It's impossible in some ways it feels, but this started off like this and now it's lush. Now it's all green. And it's the most incredible thing I've ever seen. Wangari Maathai, the Green Belt Movement, she is the founder of that. Though there are examples of setbacks from her work, and that, that, that really is a testament of including everyone and creating long-term planning involved. Some of her forests, some of her trees have been cut down. But the spirit of it lives on in the Green Wall Movement, holding back the Sahara and pushing it back back into a regenerative state because the Sahara was a brittle, brittle, yes, but it was a savanna. It wasn't a desert and it became that way after the animals were removed to be killed in the Roman Colosseums and farming was tried. You know, when you remove the predators, terrible things happen. Johnson Sioux composting. I just want to talk about this tangentially because talk, talking about long-term planning, uh, we want to restore the soils. We want to store the life in the soils. We want to store the carbon in the soils. That's the that's where carbon is sunk. That's the end place of of, of carbon. So if anyone's talking to you about carbon or CO two, they're not talking about soil. They don't know what they're talking about. They don't know. And so if we want to fix that, we can in less than a year's time. It'll take a, a, an extra year. You know, we've got to make the compost. Johnson Sioux takes over a year to make but it's a passive aerated compost that has more biodiversity of microbes in it than any other compost documented ever. If we just apply one application of advanced beam compost on just 20% of arable land, we will take in all the atmospheric carbon in less than a year. That's in excess. Uh, we don't wanna take it all in, right? Right, <laughs> that would not be good, but the reality is we can rebalance things very quickly, very cheaply, very easily. The, the uh, technology is called nature and it's here. The thing is about the carbon cycle is we need to think about the photosynthetic capacity in the soils of the earth. If we have all this carbon and we don't have the ability to photosynthesize, 
where is the oxygen going to come from? We need photosynthesizers to create oxygen. So without that component in this, I mean, we can sink all the carbon down to the soil and, 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 and we, can, uh, we can do it with plants and release the, the O2 that way. But if you have an invention that's just going to take carbon in and then turn it into another fuel for another car to burn, there's no hope. We're screwed. The reality is we have to work with, with nature in order to fix things because we live on a planet that is defined by nature. We are a product of nature. And if we bite the hand that feeds us, that created us, this, the, 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 we, we jump out of the, the, the spaceship into just naked space, or if we burn the whole planet and turn it into Mars, you know, we have no future. So it's really up to us to manage these things. And what we learn, and the thing is the mainstream media is going to keep giving us their narrative. They're going to force it down our throats. Why? Because no one's paying attention. They're losing control. And when people are in a toxic relationship and you leave, they try everything. They throw the kitchen sink at you. They throw guilt at you. They throw fear and scaring and threats. They may even get physical. This is that negative care that we were talking about before. So um, there's negative forms of care. There's lies being told. And there is omission. People are covering things up, hiding things, and selectively looking at things, selectively sharing things. And the reality is so we can turn this whole carbon thing around, but it won't fix the real problem if we don't do all the other pieces that create a holistic response. And it's called permaculture. That's what we need. We need the animals. We need the plants. We need ourselves to be living regeneratively. We need our coastlines fixed. We ne it's all together. It's all tied up together. So that means... Number one, that we can take down all this, that excess CO2. Number two, that means that we can take care of it moving on into the future as well. So that means that peak oil and peak gas will be a thing that will hot the face. And the wonderful thing is we can create biogas as part of permaculture too. We can create so many other options for oils that are natural based, like the, all the kelp and, and mineral algae oils and fuels. There are so many options. There's so many powerful solutions out there. But we need to break out of this broken narrative that, that the media, and maybe you already have, and I'm just a broken record. So uh, I'm going to keep going. Management, monitoring, adaptation, care. So we need to not just plan for the future, not just put the money aside or invest by planting the trees or setting aside areas, creating the wildlife corridors, all of it. It's managing it. It's monitoring it, observation. We're gonna get into that more in a second. But it's, it's paying attention so that we can properly adapt our plans. Our long-term plans will always change. The investment, will probably change as well. 
well, this is already regenerative. We don't need to give that as much attention now. We can focus on monitoring that system because it's wild again. And then they can shift their attention to other things that need care and focus. So it's, it's really powerful to think about this. It could be a wild natural farming kind of approach. This is Masanuba Fukuoka. These, these photos are provided by Larry Korn, who reviewed this book, which is free on my website, thepermaculturestudent.com. Those pictures are featured in there. And you may have trees that are unpruned and allowed to go wild. You may be running animals over sections of your land and, and improving the pasture. You may be doing a permaculture market garden for high production, for providing in a regenerative way for your community. This is J.M. Fortier at Quatre Temps Farms. And they're all guided by these ethics and principles. So what are permaculture principles? Well, what is a principle? Principles are fundamental truths. And the first that is the most common and, and in many ways, one of the most important because it facilitates us doing all the other principles well is the principle of observation. And listening, observing, pondering, reflecting, they're all components of learning. When one observes, one learns. And that's an ancient Hawaiian saying. The rule of necessitous use. Only use what you need. This makes a lot of sense. Rule of conservative use. Reduce waste and pollution. Restoration of mineral and nutrient cycles. Careful energy accounting. Identify and prevent potential long-term negative effects. This is being conservative with the natural capital, being conservative with the biodiversity, and this is the heart of much of the conservation effort. Principle of cooperation. Have you read this book right here, The Hidden Life of Trees? This book's incredible. And it reveals how trees communicate and help each other out. They signal to each other. They, they share information. They share genetic information. They share foods and nutrients. And we need mother plants. We need mother trees in the forests. We need naturally growing forests, not plants grown in a nursery. Fungi and plants mutually benefit from their associations inside and outside the plant, all over the roots, inside the cells, inside the phloem. This is a fungally inoculated squash root. This is from my microscope. I took this picture. It feels like outer space. I love it. And this is a lot of inoculated fungi doing a lot of amazing work here. And as Bill Mollison said, Cooperation, not competition, is the very basis of existing life systems and of future survival. Life intervention principle. Life creates order out of chaos. As the sun's energy comes to the earth, plants and photosynthesizing microbes transform it into energy and food. And the oxygen that's released in photosynthesis goes on to be the life breath of all animals and fungi. And it creates the order and patterns of the world that we live in. Life is creating order out of chaos, which means that it's truly syntropy, not entropy that we experience on a daily basis. Our planet defies this idea 
that everything is just always petering out, all the energy is always just being lost. Well, Centropy is cycling that energy into living systems that continuously expand and complex and grow to capture that energy and cycle it. The principle of return. What goes up must come down. Whatever we harvest, we must in turn sow. If we take, we must return. We all know this. This seems very basic, um, but if we are gardening and we don't put compost back in, minerals back in, then our soils are being depleted with every piece of food that leaves it. If you're a market gardener, all that food that's going and being consumed elsewhere represents water and minerals and nutrients being removed from your soil and your site. So we must, we must do our part. Matter can neither be destroyed nor created. And the same goes for our gardens and our sites. We must realize that everything has a place and there's no away. Birch's six principles of natural systems. Now, these are very much, you know, realities that we all can kind of verify. Nothing in nature lasts forever. Natural cycles perpetuate all life. Extinction occurs with very high or very low populations. Every species has key elements that it depends on to survive. Our ability to change the earth always precedes our ability to foresee what the consequences will be of our actions. All life has intrinsic worth. And these kind of set the stage for much of, uh, of, of what we're talking about today. Now, Mollison had his own permaculture principles. It's important to recognize that he labeled them this way. So work with nature is one of his most powerful ones. A lot of us think about the garden, but it's much more than that. Wildlife corridors, working with beavers. Did you know that beavers, when they were allowed to do their thing in North America, there was three states worth of surface area in wetlands. Nevada, Utah, and Arizona worth of surface area that these amazing animals were stewarding. When you think about pH, recognize that it's power of hydrogen. So water, H2O, hydrogen. When we increase the wetness, we increase the acidity. So America was once very acidic, very wet. And it's been, it was dried out and drained when we removed the dams, when we removed the wetlands, when we removed the creators of the wetlands, the beavers. So we need to bring them back because they're going to help immensely. And if we just let nature do its thing, we'll all benefit. The problem is the solution. This is probably the most popular meme in permaculture because it's so common sense. It doesn't make any sense that we don't teach this to everyone because the problem always implies the solution. You got deforestation. Well, you need reforestation. You know what I mean? <laughs> you got pollution. You need to stop polluting and clean up that pollution. You need remediation. You have habitat loss? Well, you need to create more habitat. So it, it's very clear what needs to happen when you have that kind of pragmatic perspective. And then the least changes for the longest term effects. This is, this is super powerful. We see this by bringing back the wolves to Yellowstone. It changed everything. The elk herds were, were actually healthier. The actual trees changed the 
It affected the plants of Yellowstone. It affected the paths of the rivers and it helps stabilize the ecosystem. So we need all the components of our ecosystems. We need to bring them back, the ones that were lost. We need to re-inoculate. We need to reintroduce. We need to remediate. We need to restore. We need to rewild. Now the yields are limitless. They're only limited by our imagination and our creativity. So you could be vertically farming. You could turn what was a waste product into another product. You could, you know what I mean? You could be having farm tours of your market garden. You could, there's so many layers and stacked yields that you can create. You just have to be creative. And my favorite, everything gardens. Not only is it a statement of something that's absolutely true, but it's an invitation for us to be part of that, to be gardeners. It's an invitation to everyone to be a gardener. And I believe that everyone is naturally a gardener. You wouldn't survive on this planet if you didn't naturally have some part of you that could work with animals, work with plants, or hunt, or gather. That It's in you. Your ancestors did it. That's the reason you're here. So everything gardens. I love that concept. It's so empowering, and it's an invitation. And those are the ones that were created by Bill. Now, the principle of empowerment. The best natural systems are self-managed and need no human intervention. It's liberty. It's giving the freedom of, of exercising those rights and those instincts that allows for greatness. This is why we want animals to live as that we care for to live as wild as possible, to exercise their, their instincts to the fullest, because that is liberty. And, you know, if we could just let beavers do their thing, they would keep these streams and rivers wet all year. As it says here, we just need to stay out of their way. The principle of purity and preservation is really clear. Just keep our wild and pure places that way. Just keep them pure. The principle of choice. This also, you know, seems pretty self-evident. We want the freedom to choose all humans do. They want the freedom to choose who they want to marry, the, the, their religion, their career path, um, what they want to do with their lives, how they want to raise their children. We want the freedoms. We want to be able to speak our minds, to, 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 to be able to exercise the fullest choice. And that is freedom. The principle of stability when there are a lot of interactions in an ecosystem, we actually create stability. For instance, when energy comes from a source like the sun or otherwise, like water comes into a system, it's going to interact with so many things in it and the more interactions it has, the more stability. Ecosystems essentially are energy and nutrient cycling traps. So the more life, the more interactions, the more stability. The principle of self-regulation. Now, this is really critically important because without self-regulation, we can't have freedoms. And many of you know self-discipline, right? You've got exercises, you've got a yoga practice, you have a discipline that keeps you healthy. And you know, since these lockdowns, many of us have started new ones. And, and you understand that there's these intrinsic benefits that you can't get anywhere else, meditation, 
and working out makes you feel a way that nothing else can give you that feeling. So no one is micromanaging you when you're self-regulating. No one is dictating you. You are free. This is really, really important. There's no one telling you setting limits, no one determining what's fair and what's not fair. People are free to self-regulate. And it's truly an invitation to greatness because it is you self-disciplining so that you can be greater, so that you can save up or have that strength and that discipline or that skill or that insight or that groundedness, that balance in your life. And it opens us to greatness. It's a gift that we can only give ourselves. No one else can give it to us. And when we have authoritarian or dictators or communism, we have that gift being stolen from us. Self-responsibility, self-reliance, self-regulation, self-discipline. These are superpowers. The principles are here to guide the application of the ethics in our own lives. But the principles have too inspired the ethics because they're fundamental truths, so they're always there to be stumbled across, discovered, seen, and understood. So they kind of have like a chicken and egg relationship with the ethics. But a way to think about it is these are universal truths and our interactions, earth care, people care, future care, that had to be our basis. We wouldn't survive if we didn't take care of our tribes. We wouldn't survive if we didn't pay attention to the world around us. Overfishing, there are, there are indigenous practices in so many different ways to prevent overfishing, to prevent overgrazing, the honorable harvest. Uh, there's so many different things to make sure that we don't break this relationship. And so th th this is something that we needed to do for survival. And now we need to do it again for survival. We just had this you know, fossil-fueled party, and now we really need to reflect on, on what, the choices we made and the choices we want to make in our lives and in our cultures. And, and that's really what it's all about. It's about what kind of future do we want. We want a future based on care, where there's an abundance of natural capital so that people care is easy, and we can properly steward and guide and manage the abundance that we have with future care. And that is permaculture at its root. It's a way to stabilize and make our world more resilient holistically. It supports growth and the best in human nature. It restores the very foundations of life here on earth upon which all systems rely and are limited by so if we increase the abundance of the natural world, we inevitably improve all human systems and increase our freedoms, increase our liberties, increase all the opportunities for everyone. This is an incredible thing. And what's so beautiful about it is it's so simple and clear. Earth care, people care, future care. Everyone understands it. It's easy to communicate. It's easy to see why it makes sense. It's not controversial. We can get it into schools. It's not politicized. It's not one side or the other. It's all the best attributes of everything that makes us human. And at this time where we started this, talking about lockdowns and shortages and what you can rely upon and responsibility, look up supply chain disruptions in the U.S. on Google and you'll see something like this. 
the the, the Google readout changes by your by region. So uh, depending on what state, what city you're in, you're going to see completely different information. So this is what I see in the area I am using the VPN that I am. And American supply chains are facing disruptions. And look at the language around this. And it's clear that we're having disruptions linked to these lockdowns. And if you scroll down, even the White House has its own website. If you look third down, it says no end in sight. So if you look up the media's response to this, they're kind of mocking people and saying, you know, you might not get your, your Christmas gifts on time. But people are running out of toilet paper, running out of food, running out of medications already. So that kind of mocking of people's pain points as saying that they're trivialities uh, is going to make people very upset. And the reality is it really shows how incapable they are of doing anything about it or that they're choosing not to do anything about it. And the reality is our supply chain is spread out all over the world. Apple has over 40 countries involved in their supply chain. So the fact that there are dozens of barges and ships filled with goods sitting offshore of California is causing a huge problem. The fact that there's not enough truckers in America is causing a huge problem. And so despite the lockdowns being ages ago for many of us, we're still seeing shortages, delays, disruptions, and they're saying there's no end in sight, that it's only going to get worse. So that information for me says that like that responsibility part, the future really is in our hands. No one's coming to save us. So I have some questions for you, given that information. Are you going to be more prepared this year? Are you going to do what's necessary? Are you going to get those essential components to guarantee if you're out of power for a week, a month, you can get by? Are you going to learn more about permaculture this year? Because even if you're an expert, even if you've got your PDC, there are niche studies to be done. I just finished writing Regenerative Soil, a total niche deep dive into holistic soil science that ties in everything from Elaine Ingham to Korean natural farming to John Kemp's regenerative ag mineral perspective to the EH to the pH to the minerals to the micro to the macro. I, I went through it all and it was so rewarding. It strengthened my understanding of permaculture and application thereof made it way more sophisticated. So everyone can learn something at a greater level in permaculture because you know what? Nature is teaching us all, all the time. We can just go outside and observe extensively in more wild ecosystems than the ones that we're currently in. And we can learn a lot. Are you going to apply more permaculture in your life this year? So not just learn about it. Are you going to go get those seeds? Get those chickens and put that extra garden in. Put those extra rows in. Put that food forest in. Are you going to do it? Make it happen. And you know what? It might look different for you, but for all of us, in general, we're adding more care. And that's why this is so beautiful. It's empowering. 
I love it, but remember, the only ethical decision is to take responsibility for our own existence and that of our children to make it now. This is 1989. Bill saw the future that we are currently in, and there's no end in sight for the disruptions, for the emergencies, for the problems that a degenerative system generates. So let's make a regenerative system happen. Let's have permaculture as the basis, not just for our personal lives, but for our culture, for our businesses, for how we interact, for, for what we buy, for what we plant, for how we manage it, for everything. Let us think about how it cares for the earth, how it cares for people, and how it cares for both on into the future. I'm Matt Powers. Thank you so much for joining me. This was the argument for permaculture. Grow abundantly, learn daily, and live regeneratively. And I'll see you soon. Thank you for watching.